Hello and welcome to Altamar. My name is Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. So Peter, for several years now, we've been hearing increasingly anxious news about the Arctic, both as an environmental concern and as a geopolitical battleground as well. And there's good reason to worry because a race to gain a foothold on this isolated part of the globe has turned into a real world headline. So later in the show, we will be joined by Coast Guard Vice Admiral Peter Neffinger, who is also the Vice Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, and has written a lot about the role of the U.S. and other countries in the Arctic. So, Mooney, let's just take this from the beginning. I think everybody at this point is aware of the melting of sea ice. It's estimated, by the way, that the thickness of the ice has thinned by a third. That's an amazing number, a third since 1990. And with the melting comes a dangerous impact on sea, animal, human life all around the world. Hotter summers all over the world, rising waters in cities from Miami to Jakarta, depleted fisheries, dying whales. That's only part of the huge numbers of things that we hear every day in all of our media about what's happening with climate change concerns that comes from the impact. It's the impact of things that are, are happening in the Arctic. But because of and also beyond these enormous environmental issues, the Arctic has become a geopolitical playing field where China, Russia, the US and Europe are with varying success and with varying interest trying to stake a claim. And all the melting has made the Arctic mostly navigable throughout the year. And that's a, a huge geopolitical stake. And the possibility and the ability to shorten Northern Hemisphere transportation between Asia, Europe, and the Western Hemisphere is going to change trade for good and geopolitics for generations to come. But of course, there's more than that. A whole new swath of natural resources opens up for exploitations from significant metals to rare elements, obviously oil and gas reserves. So there's a lot of st at stake. And we'll try, we'll try in the next few minutes to deconstruct this new global battle of the ice. Sounds like um, Game of Thrones, like the Battle of the Ice. Look, but I, I, I think, you know, with the, the clearly the Arctic thaw has unleashed some dangerous economic and political games. Look, China isn't even officially an Arctic neighbor. And remember that the Arctic Circle is at 66 degrees latitude and China's northernmost point in Air Mongolia is at about 50 degrees latitude. But still, China has its sights set on a northward expansion of the Belt and Road Initiative and is actively designing policies to access minerals and telecommunications lanes for the future, maybe with an eye to a future polar Silk Road. But you can well imagine that China's hugely interested in a much shorter natural Asia to Europe route, which would occur as more and more ice melts. And, you know, significant investments are all underway in the age of, you know, in which infrastructure, mining, cabling, transportation, that's all growing as we speak. And I think the challenge lies, as it always does with China, in the ability to comply with international standards on environment, labor, and trade. But, you know, count on the Chinese to always be this really long-term strategic player. And for now, they're busy paving the way by building ties with countries like Finland and Iceland and Norway, and especially with Russia. Now, Russia, Russia, there's no surprise in Russia's interest, as it is by far the largest Arctic country. So Arctic issues hit right at home, and most of the Arctic oil and gas reserves are on Russian territory. So the possibility of developing these natural resources and the quicker shipping routes presents an unlimited long-term avenue for export growth and investment for Russia. And it's no accident that Russia, who needed infrastructure investment from China, recently signed an agreement to create a gigantic joint transportation initiative. And that's now underway. And that's not the only project. There's many more in infrastructure, energy, 
minerals telecom that are taking shape between the two nations. So there's a growing polar Russian-Chinese partnership taking place that could really turn the world's political and military tide on its head. And all of this is happening while many in U.S. and Europe are worried and distracted with internal problems. Boy, you, you said it, Mooney. Worried and distracted with other things is really the issue. I mean, I just want to repeat why you, what you just said. You know, China and Russia are advancing their claims on the Arctic, and somehow Europe in particular just is completely absent from this. Its influence is, you know, diminished by Brexit and political divisions and the rise of populism in Italy and Poland and Hungary and Spain, you know, and in the face of this asymmetric China-Russia push into the Arctic, Europe's hand is further weakened because its natural partner, the United States, just seems also absent. And, you know, I think one of the things that we should look at as evidence of this weakness and this absence was the failure of the recent Arctic Council ministerial meeting to come to an agreement on a final joint declaration. The Arctic Council has for 23 years been the official forum for discussion, consensus on sustainable development and environmental protection. But this time, the U.S. refused to agree with language about climate change in the preliminary resolution, and some believe that the refusal had more to do with punishing the Chinese and trying to curtail its increasing operations in the North. But the bottom line was that they just seemed to again walk out of this international meeting. And it's interesting how some countries are getting really smart on the Arctic, like Finland, that has a longest border with Russia and is an eternal pragmatist. They're mindful of this, and they actually have a real Arctic strategy, and they want a seat at the table, even without the U.S. and the EU. You know, I think the other country that we should talk about is Canada. I mean, you know, after Russia, you know, Canada is the second largest Arctic nation, and 40% of its land is in Arctic territory. But it's like totally not a major player. Trudeau has not developed a true strategy for northern territories beyond the scientific and the symbolic, and growing international interest in other countries' aggressive inroads have been a wake-up call for Canada's political leaders, and you know they're now looking to increase spending and develop partnerships and infrastructure development and all of that stuff, but you know I think to complicate matters more still for the, for the Canadians is that relations with the with the United States continue to be really tough. You know, you had Secretary Pompeo lumping Canada along with Russia and China while, you know, discussing threats to quote-unquote foreign escalation in the Arctic. And not to mention differences on climate change have added tension to that conversation. Yeah, so the U.S. really has not developed anything long-term. And it's true that it's recently become more aware that it needs an Arctic strategy. And the number of studies have started, conducted by the Department of Defense, arguing for increased congressional appropriations for the Coast Guard Polar Divisions. We'll talk about that with our guests. And new creating new spaces where the U.S., through tactical measures and strong words, as usual, as it happens in other countries, tries to counteract the growing in Chinese and Russian footprint. But mostly it's just a geopolitical mind game with China and Russia, and it's, there really is no long-term projects or policy proposals on the part of the U.S. And the result is that both well, countries, Russia and China, are increasing their influence while the U.S. retreats. And the U.S.'s two historical strengths, which is the ability to create geopolitical consensus and the uses of the business and military muscle, are absent in this conversation. Okay, so to help us understand the role of the U.S., the future and global impact of the race to the Arctic, we're joined today by Coast Guard Vice Admiral Peter Neffinger, who spent four years leading the thinking of the Arctic strategy for the Coast Guard and a few years ago led the U.S. delegation to the Russia-USA Arctic Dialogue. Peter was appointed in 2015 by President Obama 
to head the Transportation Security Administration. Prior to this, he enjoyed a distinguished and high-profile career in the U.S. Coast Guard, mostly recently serving as the 29th Vice Commandant. He was also the Deputy National Incident Commander on the 2010 Deepwater Horizon BP oil spill, with a Master's from Harvard and two Department of Homeland Security Distinguished Medal Awards. There is no better guest than my friend Peter Neffinger. Peter, welcome to Altamar. We're so happy to have you with us. Uh, Peter, thank you, and thank you for the uh, opportunity to join you on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, it's a it's a real pleasure and an honor to uh, sit across Let from you. Let me ask you the simplest and simplest of questions, which is why should we care? What why is what is so special about the Arctic that has attracted the interest of so many nations, and it seems that and that attraction seems to be accelerating at exponential rates. I suppose in the simplest of answers, it's because you can get there now in a way that you couldn't before. The, the fact that we've had diminishing uh, year-round sea ice, diminishing multi-year sea ice, multi-year ice defined as that ice which, 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 never, which never thaws, but that, that's becoming uh, lesser and lesser uh, over time. We've had you know, the last decade or so of, um, of some of the smallest ice coverage uh, year-round in the recorded history of the Arctic. So the fact that it's becoming accessible means that humans will find their way there and humans are finding their way there and they're finding their way there for many of the obvious reasons. There's potential resources, some judged to be or, or estimated to be significant in terms of the, re the extractive resources, oil and minerals and so forth. Environmental issues are of concern now because of the diminishing sea ice. You now have uh, more environmental impact Coastal communities in Alaska that never experienced uh, wave action before are experiencing it and are seeing coastal erosion, uh, thawing of the permafrost. And then you have the potential for expanding trade and fisheries as the uh, fish stocks move further north and as trade routes open uh, for potential. When use. I think of the Coast Guard, I think of indeed the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, navigation. Could you talk to us a little bit about how navigable is the Arctic now? Will it be more and how... How much of a game changer is the ability to navigate the Arctic Sea? It, it's still more aspirational than it is uh, operational at this point. I mean, it, you know, open water doesn't mean ice-free water, even, even in the what are called the ice-free summer months now. So right now you have, you have two, two types of shipping, I suppose, that, that you can consider uh, moving across the Arctic. There's destinational shipping. Russians are shipping a lot of natural gas from their... Yamal facility uh, to Asia, China, Japan, Korea primarily, uh, China in particular. So that's destinational shipping. There's transshipping, uh, which is a little bit more problematic. Would be would be opening a route from Asia to North Europe across. Currently, the only navigable route really is is what the Russians call the Northern Sea Route, what used to be called the Northeast Passage. Uh, it's it's a relatively open strait. Uh, Russians require you to have uh, escort and uh, permission in order to use that waterway. There are a lot of there's some issues associated with freedom of navigation and 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 accessibility and sovereignty. But right now, as I said, it's mostly aspirational, unpredictable still with respect to the ice coverage, unpredictable with respect to moving ice. As the ice melts, you actually have more unpredictability with respect to where ice is going to be located. So, so I would say that it's a, it's a growing interest. It is certainly something that the Russians and Chinese in particular are, are interested in. The U.S. has paid a lot of attention to 
the potential for it. But when in, in talking with a number of the major shipping companies, Maersk in particular, they're still uncertain as to the predictability of open water. So have not yet made any efforts to do you know, liner shipping, if you will, or dedicated shipping across the across the northern Routes. You mentioned that Russia and China are involved, but they're actually involved together and they're actively working as a team and developing massive projects in the northern areas with yes. Chinese funding, infrastructure capabilities, and then the Russian tactical intentions and significant natural resources. What is the impact of this alliance, despite the fact that these are two giants that have formerly distrusted each other? Right. I think it's, a, you know, to some extent, it's, a, it's an alliance of uh, convenience. They both need each other in, in different ways. And there's some, there's some benefit to them working together because they can jointly reinforce each other's claims to Arctic activity. Uh, the Russians, as you know, have the largest Arctic coastline. And to some extent, the, you know, that Arctic coastline uh, to them is, is like our Gulf Coast coastline in the way of thinking about it. Their activities in the Arctic uh, contribute substantially to their uh, gross domestic product, uh, and they're heavily developing their Arctic. The um, delegation that you mentioned that I was involved with in 2013, which was a, an Arctic Council visit to the Russian Arctic, we spent uh, a fair amount of time in the Yamal region in Salikard, which is a, um, a town that supports uh, the gas developments and gas, natural gas extraction operations off of uh, the northern coast of Russia. Uh, it was clear during that visit that the Russian Federation was intending to show the other Arctic nations the extent to which they're developing their Arctic and the extent to which they, they expect to be able to do so without interference, as well as explaining how they were managing the environment and so forth going forward and, and, and the um, protection of indigenous peoples. But Russia doesn't have all of the resources it needs to do that development. After the um, Crimea invasion and the U.S. sanctions that were put into place, U.S. oil companies pulled out of uh, joint operations with Russia as a result of those sanctions. China has moved in to fill that void. And so China's providing, I think, financial resources, as well as, in a sense, supporting the Russian claim to sovereignty of their region. China is also quite interested in just the ability to create economic opportunity for itself in, in the Arctic. You know, China has declared itself a near-Arctic state. Uh, they obtained observer status on the Arctic Council uh, as part of that. And from their perspective, I think this is part of their desire to become a global power. And the Arctic region being another one of those global governance regions that demand presence if you want to be a global power. So China, I think China and Russia see sort of joint opportunities in, in working together. Uh, despite their their long term rivalries, and and for the time being, it's of it's of some value, I think, particularly if you look at them vis a vis U.S. global. Influence. How do you see the the military implications of the Chinese Russian domination of the North? Well, I don't know. I think that's still that's still to play out. I think you know, as you know, China is trying to develop a significant deep water navy uh, capability and an expeditionary presence and have been working towards developing a forward capability with their Navy. Uh, Russia, for some time, has been rebuilding its naval fleet and, in fact, has been reestablishing presence in the Arctic. Uh, they had a, there was a huge Russian naval exercise in 2017. Some 65,000 you know, members of the Russian military participated. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, uh, I think, a, a very real demonstration of Russian intention with respect to its Arctic sovereignty. It wasn't necessarily meant to be provocative, but is provocative by definition. And when you do something that hasn't been done since the Cold War, uh, they're reestablishing a number of their Cold War bases that were disestablished at the, when, the, when the Soviet Union fell. Uh, so I, I think it remains to be seen what the China-Russia piece is, but, but Russia is definitely 
you know, rebuilding its capability in the Arctic, the purpose of which is yet to be to be determined. And China, I think, just wants to be part of that as well. I wanted to just go a little deeper on this, on the Russia thing, and in particularly, you know, what advances there have been in the U.S.-Russia Arctic dialogue, which you played, you know, leading role in. So tell us, what is the potential of that dialogue and where are we today in the, uh, on the dialogue? I think there's still potential there uh, because if you go back to 2013, which was the really the, the, the beginning of, the, of that dialogue in earnest, I mean, we've been talking to the Russians for, for quite some time on tactical issues, you know, navigation through the Bering Straits. As early as 1990, we were working with the then Soviet Union on defining a maritime boundary. You know, it's interesting that the maritime boundaries between Russia and the U.S., and between Canada and the U.S. have not, have not yet been firmly established, more so with Russia. So we did establish a maritime boundary uh, that was ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1991. It has not yet been ratified by the Russian Duma, although it's adhered to uh, and has been adhered to by Russia and the United States since that agreement. I think there's when it comes to just simple rules of governance, awareness, and, and the kind of partnering that you have to have to operate in such close proximity, there's still a lot of potential. And in fact, that Russia dialogue I was involved in was specifically focused on those three issues, you know, awareness of, of activities that are happening for purposes of everything from environmental re reaction to search and rescue to just, you know, navigational controls and, and the like. Uh, governance, you know, what are the structures that, and, and institutions that we put in place in order to manage that awareness? You know, as you have more vessels operating, you need to understand how you're going to manage those vessels so that they don't run into any trouble or collide with one another or the like. And then what are the partnerships that you might be able to establish with other entities, other Arctic states, other intergovernmental organizations, the various bodies of the United Nations, International Maritime Organization being maybe the most prominent to ensure the management of that governance and the implementation of those regimes. So that was focused on those three areas, awareness, governance, and partnerships. And primarily within that, looking at environmental issues, resource extraction, resource opportunities, resource availability, and then sovereignty. You know, how do you maintain your, your sovereign interests? It's fascinating. I mean, you talked a little bit about governance and partnerships, and I'd love you to sort of put on your savant hat for a second and look <laughs> to the future. I mean, maybe it's not possible with this administration because of its legendary disinterest in any international cooperation. But how does that region, how does the Arctic get managed, you know, 25 years in the future? Is there going to be some type of international management of the Arctic? Is the UN going to play a role? Is, or is this literally like the Wild West uh, in which everybody's out for themselves? Well, you know, it's interesting. And there, there are a number of potential futures that you could see playing out. But let's take the, the existing governance structure, because that's, that's likely the footprint of what we're going to look like going forward. You have the Arctic Council, and, and I think uh, many of your listeners will be aware of, uh, that the Arctic Council was uh, established in 1996. It's a UN body, but it's, not a, it's a governance regime in concept, but not in practice. It doesn't have any enforcement capability. It doesn't have a funding arm. It's a consensus-based body by definition, and it has also by mandate, excludes military security from its charter. So it's a bodies was really meant to just have a way for the, at that time, the eight Arctic nations and a couple of observer states are now 13 observer nations and, and a whole handful of non-governmental organizations and intergovernmental organizations that have observer status. But the idea at the time was to begin to awareness of issues surrounding the Arctic. A lot of it was focused on indigenous peoples and their security and safety. Some of it was, was with respect to the then 
you know, big focus on environmental, I mean, uh, scientific research, but very little really thought given to uh, the potential for, for long-term um, economic development of the Arctic because it just wasn't available. Uh, it was a good structure for a time when, when the Arctic wasn't that accessible. But, you know, once things become open and available, uh, the dynamic changes dramatically, as we, as we just mentioned. You know, suddenly when, when humans can go someplace, they go someplace and they try to figure out a way to exploit it in the, the most uh, generic sense of that term or the most um, neutral sense of that term. You know, take advantage of those opportunities that may arise as a result of it being available. So you have the Arctic Council, which is a, which is a good starting point for governance, but it's not sufficient going forward, particularly as you're looking at now um, competition for resources and trade and the like, as well as undefined sovereignty issues. It still isn't clear who owns what in the Arctic or who has access to what under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which to which the U.S. has not yet acceded, and other previous uh, treaty uh, agreements. We, the nations of the Arctic, have sovereignty out to 200 miles for purposes of economic development, that so-called exclusive economic zone. And then the Law of the Sea Convention provides opportunity to extend that 200 miles even further if you can tie your outer continental shelf, if you, or you can tie yourself to an outer continental shelf that reaches out beyond 200 miles. Well, all of that work is still being done. You know, the, the Russian Federation has declared a ridge called the Lomonosov Ridge, which is an extensive undersea shelf as Russian territory. And they've made a claim to, to an extensive portion of the of the Arctic seabed for exclusive mineral extraction and or leases and so forth. So all of that has to be managed and governed in some manner. And you can't do it with a consensus body that has no enforcement authority and the like. So I think the dialogue in the coming years is going to have to be, how do you take this body that was developed by the Arctic Council with its observer status and give it some capability to enforce either directly or indirectly through other governing entities, through other treaties or arrangements? But right now you have an assemblage of treaties and agreements and declarations that have no enforcement mechanism, uh, no implementation mechanism, and no particular body that is directly related to it. And you have other bodies like the, like the International Maritime Organization that can, that can write codes and standards for shipping. So you can, you can address little components of the Arctic, but the Arctic as a region doesn't have anything like the Antarctic does with respect to uh, treaty oversight. I've been asking a political question, and it's actually a double question. Should the U.S. take a stronger role? We've heard a lot about the Russians and the Chinese working together. Is the U.S. losing the race for the Arctic? And then the second is we've not even talked about Europe, which is tangled in internal politics and yet has some significant stakes to play. And, and certain countries have kind of gone solo, like Finland, and feeling out alliances with Russia, etc. So what is the role of the U.S. and then Europe that is lacking right now? And is it lacking? Well, I think, you know, to, um, uh, at the risk of sounding a little facetious, to win a race, you actually have to be in the race. And the U.S., to a large extent, has failed to engage in substantial ways in the Arctic. You look back over the, over the decades, uh, going back, I think Nixon was the first president to, to issue a national security memorandum uh, on the Arctic. And there have been, and most successive presidential administrations have done so. I think the Carter administration did not. I'm not sure the Clinton administration did, but there have been a number of a declaration, the outgoing Bush administration, Bush II administration in 2009, as it was exiting, uh, issued a national security decision on the Arctic, uh, which later formed the basis of the National Arctic Strategy, which was done under the Obama administration. But all of these have been statements of interest, statements of concern, but not a lot of definition as to what we do about it and how we implement it. 
Whereas you know, you have, as you as you've already noted, Russia and China in particular have strong Arctic policies and a pretty significant implementation plan. Much of it ongoing right now. So I think the U.S. has taken a wait and see attitude. You know, we we stand back. We it's hard. I think that it's hard for the U.S. to sometimes see itself as an Arctic nation. Alaska is fairly remote from the rest of the uh, country. Uh, many people think of it as a place of, of beauty and wildlife and the like, but uh, but don't recognize the economic activity that's really occurring in Alaska. You know, Alaska provides a significant amount of our extractive mineral resources to the to the U.S. They're they're shipping you know natural gas and lead zinc. The largest zinc mine in the world is in the North Slope of Alaska. So part of it is just awareness on the part of the U.S. I think that 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 you have this opening Arctic, that you have this competition brewing in the Arctic, and that you have the potential for uh, significant, if not direct, economic resources for significant development of the Arctic absent a U.S. Peter, voice. can I can I just interrupt you before, before you get to answer sure. Moni's question on Europe? If you had to choose three things that the U.S. should do to catch up, what would they be? So there's a tactical answer to that, and then there's a strategic answer to that. The tactical answer is we need to we need to provide capability to get there, because you can't be part of the Arctic dialogue if you can't be in the Arctic. And right now we have very little capability. Uh, so uh, from my past um, life as a U.S. Coast Guard officer, I spent a fair amount of time looking at our diminishing capability to reach the Arctic. And from the Coast Guard's perspective, being able to get there is critical. If you have open water and people operating up there, then you have U.S. response and sovereignty issues, particularly if they're operating in your waters. So we don't have any much icebreaker capability. We currently have one heavy icebreaker that's operational. It's about 40 years old, uh, and it's not in great shape. Uh, and the And we have one a medium-duty icebreaker, uh, which is primarily built for scientific research, and it works a lot with the National Science Foundation. That's it. The Russians have, I think, last count, around 18 icebreakers, some of them nuclear. Uh, the Chinese have one icebreaker. They're building a second, and they've announced plans or, or intention to build a nuclear-powered icebreaker. And, uh, and of course, the uh, northern European countries have a number of ice-capable vessels and icebreakers themselves. So, so the first thing is you need to be able to get there. Uh, because you can't begin to address some of the issues that we have there unless you unless you have presence. That's part of the awareness piece, and it's part of the governance piece. You have to be able to assert your sovereignty rights when it comes to navigational freedom and 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 the like. The second piece is is on the strategic side is not just a statement of interest, but some lines of effort or a statement of intent as to what we what we expect to do about those interests. How do we intend to to advance those interests? You know, what kinds of partnerships are, are more valuable to us? How would we work amongst the various Arctic nations to, to ensure equal opportunity for environmental protection, equal opportunity for mineral and resource extraction, equal opportunity for freedom of navigation and, and trade routes and, and the like, and then development of the regimes needed to manage those. If there's a presence issue, you got to get there, you got to be there to assert um, any kind of authority, to, to pay attention and to hold others accountable. And the second is, why are we going there? You know, it's not just because the water's open, but because there are, there are very real geopolitical and geostrategic reasons why countries are paying attention to the Arctic. And, and if you're one of, the, one of the large countries on the planet and one of the most economically powerful countries, then you should have a presence there to, to be a part of that dialogue. Otherwise, we're left out. And we should accede to the law of the sea convention. As the only Arctic nation that hasn't signed that convention, it diminishes our voice and diminishes our, our ability. And we, and we don't have a seat at the table when it comes to those issues with respect to you know, outer continental shelf and seabed and transport issues and so forth. We're forced into that 
unilateral approach. Right. So I'm going to just as our last question, I'm going to combine Mooney's question about Europe and just ask you also to talk a little bit about Canada, because, you know, it's a country with 40% of its territory in the Arctic. And boy, it just seems to us that that country is just missing an action from this discussion. So I'll let you just talk about one, one continent and one continent-sized country. Interesting. Well, I mean, these are both big questions, uh, but, but if I can, I'll try to summarize. So I think, I don't know if Europe is completely missing. I mean, the, the Northern European countries, particularly those on the Arctic Council, have been, have been paying a lot of attention to the Arctic. But there isn't a, a European Union approach to the Arctic, and I think that that's the point you're making. I mean, you see... Finland and Norway and Sweden and Denmark and others have, have had individual approaches and, and, and in some cases just bilateral agreements that they're making with Russia or China or, or others to manage their approaches. They've been quite active on the Arctic Council because that's a, that's a place where those countries can have a more powerful voice and, and a more equal voice with those other large countries. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if you can get the attention of the European Union for those issues as the potential for transarctic trade routes becomes becomes more realistic uh, in the coming years with the predicted you know longer open season of ice or just just these destination shipping where you've got you've got you know mineral resources moving uh, in large quantities or larger quantities into northern europe from from the, the russian oil fields but i think that that europe is going to have to start paying attention to it because as i said china and russia are are developing the arctic region jointly in a way that could give them significant control over how it's operated, how it's managed, and who has access to it. Canada uh, is next to Russia, the one, the country with the longest and, and most extensive Arctic coastline. It's unclear uh, to me what Canada's ultimate uh, strategy is with the Arctic. They've been focused largely on just indigenous peoples and environmental protection. Uh, they're looking to the Northern Sea Route uh, as a potential for trans-Arctic uh, trade, although the, the Northwest Passage is a, is a passage in name and in concept, not necessarily in, in fact, because there are a number of different ways you can make your way through the, the various islands that, are, that, that comprise that part of uh, the Arctic coastline. There's also some some concern uh, or some yeah, concern on the part of the, the Canadians as to, as to sovereignty. Canadians claim that as internal waters. The U.S. in particular sees that as international waters. The last freedom of navigation exercise we did through there was quite some time ago, but, but we've made it clear to the Canadians in the past that we, we do not agree with them with respect to uh, their, their determination on, on whether that's an internal passage or not. So I think the Canadians are still trying to decide what their, what their interests are in the Arctic beyond uh, environmental and indigenous peoples and have yet have yet to begin truly exploring some of their offshore resource capabilities there. I think from the Canadians perspective they're, they're looking to make sure that that they stay engaged, that they serve as a balance or a counter to some of the intense economic development activities. They've had a very strong voice again when it comes to uh, environmental protection and indigenous peoples, and have made it clear that that's one of their those are their primary interests. Peter Neffinger, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. This was a it's really a lucid discussion. You were great about explaining to our listeners what the Arctic is all about and what will it be all about. Thanks so much. Well, th thank you, Peter. And uh, for any of your listeners interested, there's a there's a wonderful um, Congressional Research Service report that was put out earlier this year that gives a, a superb overview of all things Arctic, and it's it's well worth reading for those who have an That's interest. That's great. We'll put it on our website. That's fine. That's great. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your thank time. Thank you. Peter, this was a really interesting discussion with um, 
the other Peter. I have a couple of different thoughts after this. One is the the word aspirational that he used regarding the navigation of the Arctic and how some countries are really looking ahead and joining forces like Russia and China and others are really not even taking a, a, a strategic seat at the table, rather engaging in some tactical activities. And I'm talking about obviously Canada that he mentioned last and Europe and definitely the U.S. So I'm just struck by this whole aspirational concept. I think more than struck by the aspirational concept, it is how it seems like societies that are commanded and autocratic are able somehow to put together much more far-reaching strategies that look 20, 30, maybe even 50 years in the future. And democratic societies, because if you're looking at Canada, Europe, and the United States, seem unable to get away from the sort of short-termism that is just plaguing certainly this this issue as plans for exploiting and navigating the Arctic seem to be in their, I, mean, I don't even know if the infancy is the right word, or certainly haven't yet been born. Well, that's terrifying. Is the, the idea of the domination of the North taking place by non-democracies? I, I, I hope that the others kind of catch up in the next few years and figure out how to take a really serious strategic role there. I think catching up is, is the key word, and we'll leave it at that for today. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. See you next time. 